Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Deeper Thrill DT on Twitter. Uh, he has a doctorate on in biomedical engineering with a focus on AI, and is an entrepreneur building biomedical systems, uh, specifically with a focus on AI in regards to medical imaging. So, welcome to the show. Hey, great to have me. I'm really happy to be here. Looking forward to this. Yeah. Uh, so let's get right into it. What is going to go on in terms of what is already going on in terms of AI and medical imaging? So I think a lot of the um, things in medical imaging is that the algorithms are getting really good as um, algor like computer vision and other types of algorithms, transformers are doing very well. So a lot of the off-the-shelf algorithms in medical imaging are just really good, and very few people have enough data to properly train large-scale AI systems, um, which, is, which is one of the reasons it hasn't really uh, spread and taken over the medical industry, the healthcare industry yet, is because, yeah, the neural networks are great, but no one really has enough data formatted right to train these big systems, which need millions, if not billions, of data points. So I think that's kind of where the name of the game is right now in the medical industry. And what are the key elements to actually getting the data cleaned up in a way that they can be used by machine learning? Um, you have to anonymize it, which is stripping all the patient information so that it's anonymous and it's only the uh, the person's you know images themselves and not their name. There's software that does that pretty easily, but a lot of the thing too is this data is stored on the hospital servers and it's difficult to just... Let's say you want to have AI for you know liver liver MRI MRI that has the liver in it, or CT. It's tough to just pull out that set of data and then like put it in a cloud system, um, extract the raw image values, and there's just a whole set of pre-processing mm -hmm. steps that the pipes just aren't made easily yet. That's super interesting, um, and. So you've got it that is stored on the hospital servers. And I imagine it's just like you have to talk with you have to interface with the IT people at the at the hospital. And I'm sure the IT people at the hospital are always uh, are not necessarily the the startup type of IT people. It's probably like the old school version of IT people, which are are uh, kind of more bureaucratic and stuff. Um, yeah, for sure. For yeah. Um, and then I think one of the things is the IT people, they're not experts necessarily on the software itself. So they don't know how to just give you the data you need right away either. Yeah, it reminds me uh, that we are, all this hype about AI is really interesting. And it, for the things that AI has access to and can get access to easily, it's going to revolutionize those things. But it always comes back to that form, the same problem, which is like, how do you get access from people who uh, are gatekeepers? Uh, mm -hmm. And there's tons of those problems as well. What do you think about that gate gatekeeping question? Yeah, I think that um, the gatekeepers are not just the IT. It's um, the hospital administrators have to have a clinical trial going with you to really give you a lot of data usually. And so there's gatekeeping in terms of bureaucracies where you have to go get an institutional review board, it's called, to give you permission to do a clinical trial. You have to very specifically say what data you want um, you have to fund the clinical trial if you you know if doctors are spending time on your stuff and getting you data and not their work, you got to pay them their five hundred or a thousand dollar an hour rate to really like compensate for their um you know for, if they're spending a lot of time on stuff. Um, you know, I think a lot of the gatekeeping too is technological in that um or rather engineering that a lot of people don't necessarily know how to work with three d data. So if you get like a CT scan or an MRI scan, it's a 3D data set. It's it's capturing you know a whole a, a, basically a box inside your body, not a not a simple flat square. 
And so a lot of the AI algorithms out there are built for 2D. And so you need expertise to know how to adapt them for 3D data sets so that, because you want to look at the tumor in, in a full 3D volume. You don't want to look at a slice of the tumor. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so how is it, how is it changing so far? How is, how, like, what are you involved in and what, what have you seen and what's going to be the effect over the next six to 12 months? Um, I think what's changing is um, there's, there's two things that are changing in the engineering side. Um, there's data and the algorithms. In terms of the data, there's a lot more public data sets that are being curated. Um, the IDC is called the Imaging Data Commons, for example, is like a, a U.S. government-led attempt from the National Cancer Institute to just aggregate as much public data sets that are just scattered on the internet into one consolidated spot which is going to make AI progress easier. So more public data sets is one thing. And then the algorithms, people are seeing what GPT is capable of and how powerful transformers are in language AI. And they're starting to apply it to medical AI. A lot of the newer algorithms out there, one is called SWIN, S-W-I-N, and it's built on transformers, which is an upgrade over the old convolution neural networks that people used to use just a few years ago. And so as one industry, like language modeling and chatbot really grows and shows what works, a lot of that stuff is being adopted by other fields of AI. Um, so there's a lot of like, you know, cross-pollination between what works in different subsets of AI. So that's a big positive change. Get enough of them. <laughs> a lot of these things have like N equals 100 or N equals 500 and you know, GPT was trained on N equals like 10 billion, like whatever the whole internet is. So there's a, there's a big data disparity that they're trying to approach the gap. Interesting. What are the downsides of AI that you see? Uh, can you be more specific? Like in what field, what context? Because you could always come up with well, let's, little robot ideas. Yeah, let's go right into it. So um, we've talked before on Twitter about how the kind of like VAC stuff is really interesting the there's the vax mandates and i agree with you that the vax mandates were like horribly immoral and like a huge step back for a lot of civilization uh but then specifically my understanding of the mrna vaccine is that it's a specific it is like regardless of whether they said that it's not a gene therapy that it is actually a gene therapy and so there is sort of a a biomedical thing happening within this specific uh instance and like that crosses a boundary in terms of like transhumanism. It feels like the the cell phone is the first barrier towards um, or the for, first barrier to be crossed in terms of transhumanism. We are now basically cyborgs with a artificial uh, limb that's like a, a Swiss army knife. And then the next one is seems like this mRNA vaccine is the next step. We're really bringing into the, the, the bio side of transhumanism. And I see a lot of downsides to that. I also see a lot of upsides. Uh, but, uh, and it's, the, everybody's gonna have to make their own choice on whether they jump into this. What, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I think in terms of the transhumanism angle and the biomed side with the MRNA vaccine, uh, um, don't care if anyone else did, but, against the mandates and the mandates are going to be interest are, are it's good that they didn't um stick because now like you said people do have a choice whether they want to take the next technology that's meant to heal so like the mrna va vaccine if you take it at face value and you don't go too far down the rabbit hole it was an attempt to and um you know come up with some response that prevents some disease or help some disease, or prevent symptoms, or lower symptoms, or whatever stated goal versus actual goal we don't need to get into. But I think with generative AI, they're going to start to be able to generate mRNA vaccines. They're going to be able to like rapidly have an AI, like AI can generate, MidJourney generates images, ChatGPT generates text. They might have a generative mRNA AI in the future that could not 3D print necessarily, but sort of um, define the the biological structure of a new potential vaccine. So they'll be able to rapidly come up with a whole bunch of different um, injections. Now with the COVID thing, I'm you know I'm glad that we as a society chose to keep people's freedom where they do get to choose whether or not to take the injection. That was one of my main motivations. But when it comes to AI and the risks. 
the risks are that anyone, any bad actor will, might be able to generate a disease or a cure that's not a cure or if generative AI goes, spills into biological, um, there is just risks of anyone can make transhumanist injections. Anyone can make implants if AI gets that good and can generate things on the fly and they become physical realities. Anyone can have a lab of a hundred Petri dishes, each with their own maybe mRNA and maybe their own, you know, uh, disease, you know, as in some sort of dystopian hegelectic dialectic, Hegelian dialectic sort of situation. But I mean, the risks of the AI is just, it's so good that it lets anyone generate things. And if 3d printers and whatever cell cultures get good enough, imagine, you know, going, buying a lab kit, in the future in 10 years and you plug your AI into it and it can generate new, you know, vectors for you, new viruses, not new viruses, maybe, but new cures, new drugs to try out. And if it becomes that easy and, and it, it can spiral out of control potentially. Yeah. And it feels like it's a, it's like a um, adding napalm to something that's already been going on ever since all the, bacteria and the penicillin and antibacterias uh have come up as the resistance you know and the life mm -hmm. develops resistance to the to these tools that we then use and then it, it, it'll be that same tension but now within uh, uh printed mm -hmm. printed diseases and printed uh protections against those diseases some of those protections may actually be new diseases themselves uh and and like, do you think that the mRNA vaccine was like, well, the the risk of it, because the reason why I didn't personally get it was because the the risk seemed too great, seemed like it was a novel thing that hadn't been really tested, although they said that it was tested. I don't believe them. Um, and so like there's this risk of trying anything new. Uh, do you think that AI will actually solve that risk or will it just be kind of like a marketing scheme that'd be like, oh, we can develop all these new things? Uh, and then, you know, they're perfectly tested, but they aren't actually tested. And do you think it'll be like that, basically? Or do you think AI can actually solve this issue of having these large scale risks as well? Um, I think what will happen is the like a lot of a lot of reason a lot of people didn't take it um, is because it was like a version one of something. And, you know, mm -hmm. you don't know really what testing it went through and don't rush me into a sort of attitude um, forgetting about a bit of the anti-authoritarianism, don't tell me what to do attitude. But if we focus on the uh, the biological side of it, I th I don't think AI will prevent that risk. I don't think the AI can prevent the risk of um, like all these new generative um, potential you know, gene therapies or whatever it is that the AI can help generate. Um, I don't think that solves the problem of it not being sufficiently tested on an, enough variety of people. Um, you know, or people, companies lying or maybe little propaganda saying all these cool new stuff they have. I think what it will do is be really useful at predicting whether you're a good candidate for certain treatments. Mm. So if it can triage people into, hey, you're probably better off with, you know, vaccine, you know, A371 and you're probably based on your genetics and your lifestyle and your where you grew up and whatever other factors we throw into the AI to try to figure this out, you're better predicted for vaccine C321. Like it can maybe siphon off which patients are both most suited for different treatments. That's what I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um because the, the, this is also in line with with specifically gene therapy as well, which is like the targeted targeted understanding of a human's whole genome so that they can actually apply specific treatments. What are some like regardless of the AI thing that's going on, what are some uh, advances that have happened in the last couple of years that my audience might not be aware of? I assume everyone was aware of CRISPR. Yeah. But if not, I think CRISPR just has a huge potential to be gene therapies. Um, I don't know, besides CRISPR, I mean, nanobots had a bit of a stint where everyone was excited about that for like a couple years, but I haven't really seen too much on the nanobot front. Um, I, I think it's a lot of um, like if we can maybe regrow extinct plants that could provide new medicines oh, that's and new diseases. 
<laughs> so good comes with the bad. But I think if we start looking at like extinct or we start, you know, being more systematic about how we find plants in the Amazon that have healing properties and maybe we slow down on destroying a football field worth of trees every second, which is the rate right now and kind of is bothersome. Yeah. Um, that's an incredible amount. Like since we've been talking, they've destroyed like a thousand football fields worth of the trees but anyway there's a lot of plants that we are not as systematic as about how we find which ones have medicinal properties and i think technology can really help there where based on small samples cellular samples of various plants and ai predicts which one might have healing properties yeah. which one might have psychedelic properties which ones might have poison be poisonous and i think it could really accelerate how fast we can find because most of our medicine is not developed in a lab. The lab comes later. First, they find plants that are used that are useful, and then they extract what they can and learn how to synthesize it for a lot of drugs. Mm. Not all, obviously, but I think accelerating and systematizing how we find plants that are medicinal is going to be really a, a cool vector of of technology. That is related to something I recently heard, heard, but I didn't fact check that somebody is that they're bringing back the dodo bird through cloning. Have you heard of this? I haven't heard Dodo Bird specifically, but I keep seeing like medium articles and just headlines of like scientists are going to bring back this. They're going to bring back the woolly mammoth. They're going to bring back <laughs> this old fish. Or... <laughs> I mean, can we just like bring back megalodon sharks? I think that'd be cool. <laughs> um, uh, I think it would be really funny if there is some sort of Black Mirror episode of us bringing back the Dodo Bird, but then it somehow like took revenge on us <laughs> for, for making it making it extinct. Um Okay, so uh, let me go back to my notes here. Uh, so we got CRISPR, we got dodo birds, uh, these plants that we can identify. This brings to mind about prediction in general. I've, the way that science is described to me often is that science is uh, uh, basically predictive. So you create an experiment and then based off of that experiment, you can generalize the results and predict under given circumstances. Uh, and then we've got this thing called AI. AI is coming in. And not only is it helping us with like current things that don't need prediction, uh, but are based off of prediction of, of the, these LLMs predicting the next token. Um, do you think that AI is getting to the point where it will be able to predict the future better than us? No, I. it's like humans can't predict the stock market. It's it's AI will be able to show us larger scale patterns that we weren't previously aware of. Yeah. Um, I think that's what will happen. So, like, I think predicting the future is just a fool's errand because, like, like, even if you're right a lot of times, then maybe that builds up a, a bit of a really rough surprise when you're wrong. You know, like, we don't know how the future unfolds. We don't understand what time is. Predicting the future is, like, we're creating the future. We're part of the future. It's not like we're outside of the future trying to predict it. By starting to predict the future, you come up with, like, the Oracle of Delphi issue where, like, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you predict something and then it gets in people's heads and then it becomes real, did you predict it? Did you create it? Are we co-creators of the future? And I just like, as AI spreads throughout society, can it predict its own third order effects of itself being there? Like you come up with philosophical limits of predicting the future. So, but I do think that AI, what AI can do that we can't is AI can take the weather like let's say it can take sensors around the world of different temperatures or different seismic activity, whatever it can combine all that blanketed global information into a coherent set of patterns to tell us about those patterns that we are just incapable of processing in parallel, all that data. And so while we can study things and come up with our own conclusions and find our own patterns, AI will show us other layers of patterns all around the world now, whether we use that to better predict the future, I'm not convinced of that. Mm. Um, it's very interesting, the Oracle of Delphi issue. Uh, it reminds me of the of COVID like in the beginning, because my one of my big problems with the COVID thing was that the Oxford models predicted and tied spe COVID specifically to the Spanish flu of 1919 uh, or 1918. And uh uh, and the, those were highly, highly wrong models. So they weren't actually predictive. And there's all these other things that are coming into it as well about um, kind of like uh, predicting based on models. And those models, we just have to take as appeals to authority because it was done by scientists. 
uh, and they're respected scientists, so we should automatically believe them. And unless we have a PhD in these specific fields, we sh we shouldn't be arguing with them. Um, and uh, and then, but that created the whole panic around COVID. If the if those Oxford models weren't publicized in the way that they were, along with the fake videos of people dying on the street in China, um, then I don't think COVID would have been really noticed. I mean, I think there's a lot of actual like. Uh, um, evidence that COVID was actually around before the Chinese government made it a thing uh, and that it had been actually circulating for quite a bit, a long time with nobody noticing. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's just a kind of, I guess, a, a point. But uh, if you have anything to add on that, then we'd love to hear it. Otherwise, I'll move on. No, I, I think I think that ties in well with prediction, the, the trust the experts idea. And that's only going to get worse with it as AI gets better and we start blindly trusting AI's predictions, which is a big problem. But the whole COVID thing of like, trust us, we know what we're talking about. Um, and like, trust us, these models are correct. This is how the virus will spread. It's inevitable that this is going to be the, the way this goes. It shows how bad we are at predicting and it shows how much we add our own incentives into it. Like they, people who pushed the propaganda heavily, they wanted more control and consolidated power in the world. And so their own incentives and bias were mixed into how they forced the response on everyone's throat. And then I think in terms of like, you know, does, does the past predict the future? Sometimes, sometimes not. And to model it after the Spanish flu and, you know, it, all the fear mongering that was done because they were so convinced this was going to be like the black plague and like kill like a third to like half of the world's population. Like, I don't know. Some people were probably convinced of that. Some people didn't care and just wanted to exploit it for their own gains and try to propagandize the world for their own selfish pleasures. Some probably had a hero complex and thought they were saving the world because their predictions of how it was going to go and how deadly it would have evolved into. Like they, they probably thought it was going to be like super deadly and then evolve into something even more deadlier and it becomes like some like dystopian TV show like The Last of Us and like, you know, the world's in an apocalyptic state and they need to save the world by forcing the vaccine into everyone's arms before it's too late. And they probably had some hero complex. So I think like we're just bad at predicting the future and trust the experts like people are starting to think for themselves in a good way and, and not necessarily just blindly trust authority. But I don't know, maybe if AI is the authority, people will blindly trust it more or the people who are going to blindly trust authority will turn to the robot gods instead of their political elite gods. You know, who knows? <laughs> um, this, this is a very interesting because I think uh, a, a philosopher that I, I study, his name is David Hawkins. Um, he's a little bit out there for a lot of people, but I find his, his insights to be very helpful. And he says the core fundamental problem of human human beings is that we have no sort of firmware, software uh, 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 firewalls against false information. So we just mm -hmm. tend to believe false information. Um, and, uh, and then that creates the whole problem of the ignorance that the Buddha talked about. And that, you know, it's just like, it's just like, it, 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 we have, and he also talks about the difference between content and context. And our focus so much as individual human beings is on the content of our experience rather than the context of our experience. Mm -hmm. And that context of our experience is almost infinite and limitless. Um, and there's so many sneaky little attractor fields that sneak their way in through the context and we're not paying attention to it. We're just focused on the, the output of, of our experience and all these kind of things get stuck in our brain about how the way the world works and they're not even close to being true. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and so as you're saying with the AI thing, that's going to be very interesting in terms of where that heads. And to go back to the COVID just for a second was the, was I, th I think a huge thing that got a lot of people was uh, here's this epidemiologist who had been ignored because it was this field that was just like not too exciting for most people. And then all of a sudden they get a huge amount of Twitter following <laughs> Shine, <laughs> brought into the limelight right yeah, away. Right. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then got attached to that. Ooh, uh, now I have power. Now I have this ability to influence people. And then that narrative that they were spinning then took on a life of its own and and to tie it in with that kind of that content of the experience it's like they just got so focused on that narrative that false belief uh that it just created a a, a golem which is now like now they have like 10,000 20,000 100,000 followers but all of those followers have become basically um uh you know aren't giving them much insight except for repeating that narrative and giving them the the dopamine from from which is a, a problem in general in terms of 
social media just like I, I worry about it when I start speaking of like creating this narrative, then I then I get focused on the narrative and then lose out on an ability to to um, be in a generative place where I can come up with new ideas and other things is because I'm attached to this brand or this character that I've created. Um, well, I think the in, in terms of the epidemiologists, like immediately getting like thrown into the limelight as our trusted authority figures that we all started to turn to and they had never been before and they ended up. You know, you gotta. I think you gotta remember, like their whole career has been on studying the viral effects of, um, like violent outbreaks. I said the word viral twice, but whatever. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, so their whole career is meant on modeling and trying yeah, to figure yeah, out yeah. what epidemiological models, mathematical models will best show disease spread. But they tend to have some confirmation bias where they're studying it. They're studying diseases that did spread well. They rarely study diseases probably that don't spread as rapidly as as the big ones and so like their incentive in a way was like hey we're going to show you the models of how this could go like this could spread like the black death and we're all fucked like here's how viruses have evolved in the past so their all incentive structure wasn't to say maybe this is a flash in the pan or maybe the maybe the uh the 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 mortality rate doesn't justify this level of response they didn't really have incentive to say that and then after they you know, and a lot of people on Twitter, even in like my corners and stuff, were they were proud of themselves for having found COVID yes. or learned about COVID yes. in early January yeah. or late December, and like that meant they were the fear mongers at the start, saying, "Hey, this could be the big one." Like they they got some incentive to like call it early, and they were right. But a lot of them didn't realize that by making it about fear, like, "Hey, this could be the big one," we've we've shown you early. That's turned into the powerful saying, well, you know, let's 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 push the propaganda. Let's use this as an excuse to to rank up that propaganda machine and seeing what it's capable of. The world needs us to save them. And we're here to do our part. You know, like <laughs> that's how that's how I see it, at least. Yeah, well, and it's and it's interesting. It brings to mind the fact that people can be right generally. Yeah, but very rarely does somebody get it 100% right, if at all. Uh, yeah. And that, and that, so yeah, I was one of those first cohort of people who uh -huh. found out about it. I wore the masks and the, and the thing. I think, yeah, we we're proud of that. that. Yeah, you yeah, were exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so we were right that it was a world defining thing. But as you said, it's the Oracle of Delphi thing where we then created it. And I think Balaji is the main person who, who really did it. I think he's the one who really used his, uh -huh. his audience to basically expand the mm -hmm. message. And he was right in the fact that it was a world world changing disease. But how much of it was the fact that he had actually used his one million followers to create the problem of of like every, everybody was boohooing it. You know, none, nobody in the uh, WHO or all the U.S. institutions were actually taking it seriously, except for these Internet nerds. But then those Internet nerds kept on promoting it, particularly spreading those fake videos of people dying in the streets in China. Um, and, uh, and, uh, uh, so yeah, it just created this whole thing. And so they were, they were right, but then they were also wrong about a lot of things. And that was a crazy thing about COVID is how many turns it, it took. Cause mm -hmm. it, like, it, like I would, I started talking loudly about how lockdowns weren't working in May of 2020. So it took me a few months to, to switch my beliefs to being like, oh, okay, so I was part of this early wave and then, but now we're doing this lockdown thing and the lockdown thing isn't ending, even though we're going into summer. Uh, and then and then that lasted for a whole year past where I thought it would last. And then the vaccines came and and I was has, you know, I was I was pro vaccine. I was I wanted I think that vaccines are an important part of our health response. Uh, but then uh, I then there were a lot of shifts back and forth between that as well. And now I'm on the other total other, other end of the spectrum. Some might even call me anti-vax, uh, but I'm just anti-vax on this specific vaccine, as long with the some of the other leaky vaccines. Um, and uh yeah, it's just wild. You can't ever be 100 percent right. Yeah. And I think like I think one of the concerning things was just watching people kind of get a little giddy and frothing in the mouth. Like yes. in Australia, those videos of the cops like really getting a little too totalitarian with those uh, lockdown camps that they started throwing people in like armed guards saying you're not allowed to walk in the sun more than an hour a day outside. Like there's an instinct in some people to kind of go like full tyrant a little bit. Yes. Um. And so that was the concerning part for me. Like, I never had an opinion necessarily on the vax or not. I didn't care what anyone did. Plenty of people in my family took it. I don't care. I didn't take it. 
I had a real issue with the mandates and the way like I couldn't I was, I was living in New York City and I couldn't go to a restaurant. I had to flash a I had to flash a QR code proving some medical history, share it with the 17-year-old host to be allowed to go to a bar in New York City or a museum. Like that bugged me more than anything. Yeah. That that was the thing I fought against. And I'm so glad it failed. Uh, yeah, because because we would the, that world but, that we were entering into was gnarly. And I and I know you know COVID also has been kind of beaten to death in a lot of talks. So I don't want to like harp necessarily on it. You know I think we've stated our opinions, but I think the China misinformation thing is a is a very relevant topic even now and with COVID. Like when they made fake videos of people dropping dead on the streets to kind of spark the propaganda campaign a little bit. Um, I think what they're doing now is. Uh, using their surveillance state to give people social credit scores where if you jaywalk the ai flags you and you know you can't do yeah, interesting it's i i think the misinformation coming out of china with terms of videos and deep fakes becoming so popular they used it during covid like they had a really good misinformation campaign during covid and now they're using that misinformation campaign for other things and with deep fakes and the social credit score, the surveillance state, like these are the more concerning things to me also than the transhumanism uh, bioengineering. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Well, and, and that seems like that that system is now heavily in place inside of China. It seems like, and that may be even, I've been trying to think of the motive for why the fake videos and in, in, were created and the motive might purely have been a domestic thing of like using this this thing to now establish this 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 uh surveillance state inside of china which yeah. was already on its way and that that i think that actually might be the reason why like that uh, and that's a new well thing. you want to like don't we don't know the cause and effect order like yeah. correlation and causation are not the same thing so it might have been that they made those videos to try to get people to stay inside at all costs just mm. in case this got bad. And then they started to exploit those videos for propaganda purposes afterwards. Yeah. You know, we don't know, right? Yeah, interesting. It doesn't mean that that was, they, that was engineered. It could have been that video someone made and then they capitalized on it, exploited it opportunistically. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, could, have, it could have been a third party not related to yeah. the Chinese government. Um, and I was talking with my French friend a couple of weeks ago who's in Europe and who, who, who didn't go full on to like, he, had, he didn't sever our relationship because I didn't do whatever, but, uh, but he, he, he had the other end of it and he's like, Oh, but that could have easily been created by a far right organization as well in order mm -hmm. to do the misdirection, which is exactly, we don't know. We have no idea. And this is one of the issues is that uh, uh, human beings don't know. And we pretend we know really convincingly. And now we have this third brain that also does the same fucking thing, which is to pretend that it knows something when it doesn't actually know it. Um, well, like, and like yeah. how photorealistic are these generative images now? Yeah. Like they are photo, like I, it's difficult even for algorithms to determine what's fake generated images and, and now videos soon and what's real. Like imagine the misinformation that is going to come out. Like you were saying before, one of the issues is, um, you know, this misinformation, you said human, what, what was it? Humans are not good at uh, telling you know, truth and falsehood. Yeah, from misinformation sort of thing, I think you said specifically. So how's the yeah. deep fakes going to affect that, I wonder? Yeah. And do you think that I've heard recently that China won't isn't isn't actually offering the LLM technologies to the domestic population because they have no way of controlling it? Um, but I'm sure the CCP probably is going to actually like implement LLM technology for their their misinformation externally for 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 foreign policy type of goals and stuff like that. Have you heard well, anything about that? I don't know how much they'll actually use. I think that's going to happen in the next few decades, but I don't think governments are actually using LLMs to strategize yet, whether mm -hmm. or not they could or should or it would be clever and maybe someone in the CIA is doing it like we don't know. Right. But I think what's. What is going to be is they're going to um, they're waiting till their own LLM is fully uh, guardrailed. Like they want to make sure that if you ask about Tibet, it's only giving you the propagandized version. Like yeah. they need to lock it down. Then they're going to release it to everyone and everyone's going to love it. And it's going to be amazing. And they're not going to realize the subtle layers of. So a lot of the ways that you can manipulate the LLMs is by choosing what you add to the training data. So by yeah. them excluding certain texts from the training data, they manipulate their population at a deep subconscious level that no one's aware of. That's interesting because the because it's almost like the subconscious of the LLM. Yeah, that the, the training. That's all it knows. Yeah. Like if you if you don't feed in a book about 
why West the West is good. And you feed no books into that. You don't have to make it a malicious set of guardrails if your LM just never saw that content in the first place. <laughs> Which is so similar to the way that humans work uh, uh, in the sense that we have these neuron neuronal uh, networks that get established once we've kind of been put through an experience. And that experience, there's no way to delete that inside of the human brain. I believe that's that's what I've heard is that you can only forget it, uh, mm-hmm. but that that initial connection uh, still imprinted on your neurons or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I this, think too, yeah, go for it. too. I think the it's you got to think too of what are the effects if the LLM is friendly. It's nice. It's very useful. It's helpful. People are learning physics and chemistry and like safe concepts through mm. it mm. and like they're they're getting better at math they're doing better in their lives mm. do they really care that they didn't learn about american history in that ln like the ln just might not know about american history like do the individuals care and does that make them brainwashed subtly or are we all brainwashed based on yeah. our own you know experiences or how do you i don't even know how to view that (laughs) well and this brings to mind an interesting question in general is that i've i'm a big fan of studying history and for example i just read the book stalin's war uh that is sort of a revisionist version of of world war ii that states that stalin Mm -hmm. won the war basically by 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 his things and the level of detail in that book there's it's just the principle of history and a principle of learning is just that you'll you'll never get even close to the full answer unless you've studied thing for years after years after years um and like even when you get that level then you're still biased in the sense that you view it in, in the particular foundation that that accords with you and and so like that's just like a problem of basic human weakness is mm-hmm. that we will never we'll never we're, we're all we all are brainwashed i believe like and and is particularly now with the information environment that we live in of just so much information uh, and like, it's just going to get crazier and crazier and crazier. This goes back to the earlier part of the conversation, which is the transhuman humanism bit, which is like, so there are going to be these problems that arise that are based on our use of technology. And in order to counteract those problems, we'll have to adopt more technology. Um, and this leads to the kind of singularity thing of like, okay, well, where does that end? Like, where where do we actually stop ourselves? And in order to absorb all this information, we're going to have to ab- adopt the computer inside of our brains. And then I learned that it's all passive at the moment. Like, they can take fMRIs and and um, and read thoughts basically passively. We don't even need to put a chip into crossing the the transhumanist uh, barrier. Basically, what do you, what do you think about all that? So yeah, it's it's um, non-invasive mind reading. I mean, yeah. I think fMRI. You're still in a machine, though. Don't forget, yeah. it's not portable. Yes. They don't. Uh, one day, maybe we'll have portable fMRIs, and we'll all wear like uh, tinfoil hats, <laughs> like looking <laughs> with goals in our head. Yeah. Um, I I think you know you look at the Muse M U S E. It's a device yeah. that's meant for meditation, and so it basically reads your brainwaves with a um, an EEG, like just like the typical like scalp brain stuff you put some jelly on and you stick it on your brain on your on your head over your hair and like it can read that and you can control a little like video game character on the screen with your brain waves and it's meant to help you meditate and relax and it'll guide you through different exercises but i think non-invasive you know i work on radiology so non-invasive imaging and it's interesting and the, the stuff coming out this month about fmri basically reconstructing which scene in a movie the person is focused on based on their fMRI signals or I, I think that is going to spread like, mm. but uh, all of this, you know, come back to COVID a little bit, bodily autonomy and consent. Do I want you allowed to read my thoughts, you know? <laughs> and, and it's, then that goes into the abstract question of, of the tracking that has been going on for years now, which is that none of us, I mean, we gave our consent, but only because the forms have gotten so large that nobody can read. <laughs> no one reads them. <laughs> I've got, I've got, a, I'm about to do a loan, uh, getting a loan right now. And I've got something coming over to the house in order for me to sign papers. And I thought it was going to be a five minute thing. And she's like, no, no, this will take an hour and a half. Uh, there yeah. are a hundred pages that you need to sign. And it's like, wait, yep, I, I got a mortgage. Yeah, Read all those pages. <laughs> like how important is it for me to read all those pages? <laughs> You're liable uh, if you don't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's just like, it's that, that's the whole thing that life was supposed to get easier and we were supposed to have more time, uh, and because of technology and that promise has wildly, uh, been false. And we are now 
crazy, like stuck in a strange world where technology actually has created all these new problems, mostly because of what we're talking about with the gatekeepers and the liability and stuff like that of just like, if everything gets automated, when an edge case comes in and something fails, who's liable? And that question has created just like this hydra of things that are extremely complex and do not save time and certainly do not save stress. Um, well, I think I think in terms of technology, like not actually saving us time, I think a part of it's like there's a principle of like you spend what's in your pocket. And mm-hmm. I think that applies to time, too, where like people need to do something throughout the day. And so they'll create new jobs, even if technology replaced their old job, because because people need a purpose. They're bored that labor has some value. You feel accomplished. Um, it's beneficial. And you think of the easiest case to me is the washer and dryer. I think a lot of like the women voting movement came from the washer and dryer technology, replacing what a woman like someone had had to be doing clothes and cooking and doing the dishes like chores. Chores suck. They take a lot of time. (laughs) It's like running the household is is hard. And especially having to like wash and dry clothes by hand. And like the fact that washers and dryers came along, what did it do? Did women have nothing to do? Did they sit around? No, they started to enter the workforce. And vote and like enter politics in in their own way and like etc. So I think technology creates more complex and situations though, which is the natural. Maybe that's a good thing. Like life is a complex structure surrounded by a sea of chaos. And if technology allows life itself and society to become more complex, yeah, we're, we end up not lounging around all day. Even though technology promises that it'll, you know, do the work of a hundred people, the machine will do the work of a hundred people. Um, but we end up creating new jobs and new problems and new hobbies, new things to do. But maybe that's good that the, we're moving towards a higher complexity state of society. And that brings to the mind the pyramid. Uh, what is the pyramid of self-actualization mm-hmm. that uh, once people had the washing machines, then they could actually realize that, oh, OK, well, uh, there's this problem of that. I don't have a fundamental right to vote. Uh, and uh, and then and then um, tried to figure that out as well. Um, and, uh, so, and this comes to mind with the, basically the, the idea that AI will take all of our jobs, but I think that's a mm-hmm. false premise because there are, as you said, there are so many different problems that need to be solved and we're just, we're barely even getting to well, the basic order ones. I, I, and well, this is something that I've gotten a lot of pushback from other smart people on about my position that it, of AI and jobs, because I think it is a legit concern that's going to be a very important talking point over the next couple years as AI gets better and people start using it more, especially in the workforce. Um, I think, you know, my opinion is it will replace specific jobs and it sucks for the individuals. On mass, I think it'll displace jobs because people will learn how to do different things. Maybe if everyone can build an app, more people will build apps and then the app marketplace will explode. You know, who knows, like something like that could happen. Um, But it'll replace maybe the, the McKinsey associate who gets paid 300 K his first year at 23 years old to write something that GPT can write. Like maybe that jobs out in a way, or I'm just guessing, but. Like a lot of people do think it's a real concern where AI will create what's called a post-abundant society, they call it, mm. where all the labor is done. We literally can just lounge around all day, do hobbies, go for walks, play board games, like whatever it is humans want to do, AI will take care of everything. And is that good or bad? I don't buy that either. I just I just think we're going to create new jobs. They're going to be more subtle jobs, more abstract jobs, more higher level jobs. Like I said, if AI lets me type in what I want my app to look like, and in three seconds, I have a mobile app deployed on my phone and I can just like iterate with it through text and like tell it, oh, put a button there, put a button there, make it connect to a database there, call Zapier there. I can just do this with text and I don't need to know how to code. And what if everyone creates apps then? If AI lets them do that, that'll create a whole new set of jobs. Uh, of like an app marketplace and sub marketplace, you know, there's phones that could run, you know, jailbreaked apps. Like, I I just think that it'll create different types of jobs too as it replaces old ones. Yeah. Well, and to go into that that kind of predictive uh, attempt is that also I think that where we're headed is where software itself is going to disappear. Because imagine that instead of the app getting created being like hey create this app it's like hey i want to do this thing 
And then you're, mm -hmm. and you're not actually telling that in text. Cause I mean, ultimately, you know, Siri came out in 2006 and the idea that Siri had was that, you know, you speak natural language to a robot right. and the robot does it like that's the, that's the end goal. And that, you know, I see software itself disappearing. This isn't actually my idea. I got this idea from my dad, but um, where software is going to disappear uh, and we're going to basically have an agent that we talk to in a human voice that responds like a human, like in her. Um, like in Jarvis or yeah, her, I watched yeah. her recently or, or, you know, Jarvis from uh, the Marvel, whatever, uh, Iron Man, something like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And that software itself is going to disappear. Um, and, uh, and then it was really funny when you were explaining the s sitting around leisurely doing the things that we find fun. I always go back and forth because I love to work. I love figuring out problems, but at the uh -huh. same time, I also love to just like dance all day. Uh, uh -huh. go surfing and, and do all these fun things basically. Uh, but I, I imagine that there's a lot of people who would fail miserably in the world where all of that work goes away. Cause then they'd have to like sit with themselves. Uh, and I think probably about 20% of the population is even capable of sitting with themselves and about 80% is incapable of sitting them mm -hmm. with themselves. Um, and that will create all sorts of tension, but very different tension from the 20th century, which was all about like men young men not having jobs so then they go make trouble and instead of that young men not having jobs and so they go play in vr and it actually kind of works in terms of uh <laughs> in terms of like not not actually changing anything because they they their dopamine centers are so well uh cared after by this well, strange world that we live in yeah go for look, it look at too like how like young men and women are if they don't have to work, but they want money and to do something interesting, they're on TikTok or YouTube yeah, or something like they are and then they're getting sponsorships. Or if you get a million views, it's pretty easy to monetize that to at least some degree, like I think. So it's like they're dancing for attention and stuff. And I think the attention economy yeah. might replace <laughs> like the financial economy. Oh, interesting. Um. Okay, so the attention economy replacing, but then the uh, attention I mean, that's economy. Not, that's not going to happen. Right? What I say is simplistic. It's going to be new, more nuanced than that, but it'll be a part of the economy, attention. But isn't the attention economy about to get just shattered by the fact that we have uh, AI bots that are going to be able to be look like really like human beings? Like, isn't that, isn't, aren't most of those attention uh, people going away? I don't know if deep fakes could replace an actual person doing interesting stuff on TikTok. I, I don't yeah. know. I just don't see deep fakes replacing all of TikTok content. There's too much interesting shit on TikTok. Interesting. Like, uh, you see deep fakes as a subset of it. Like, hey, look at this Donald Trump video of him dancing with a penguin. I don't yeah. know. Like, yeah. <laughs> but it's but, just one, it's one post among yeah, them. Then, yeah, are, then, you, yeah. then you get to post about the aliens in Area 51 because it's a fucking conspiracy theory. Do you have any thoughts on decentralized computing, things like Urbit or Holochain? Have you looked into this at all? Yeah, I'm a big fan of that stuff. I haven't set up my own planet or galaxy on Urbit yet, um, but I'm a I'm a fan of that. I just think, in general, things move decentralized. I think Git was the really sparked the decentralization of code. Now that everyone uses Git, it, you don't have to use GitHub. Like Git itself was meant to be decentralized, where every one gets the full copy of the repository. That mirrors how everyone gets the full copy of the blockchain in a way on Bitcoin and the decentralization of money. And as open source models, like maybe BitTensor or some of these other AI blockchain crossover projects will take off. Um, decentralized computing in Urbit is going to be important. Um, decentralized um, AI as open source large language models catch up the GPT and I keep talking about this, but they're so far behind. GPT-4s are so much better than anything else out there. And I keep trying all the new stuff that comes out on Hugging Face, and it's just not touching GPT-4. But anyway, it's getting closer. When well, that happens, decentralized yeah. AI, and then the problem is going to become, once we expand to other planets, the speed of light is going to cause a problem with the uh, synchronizing stuff like the blockchain. So we'll have speed of light issues to deal with once we're <laughs> that, that advanced. That's interesting. Well, I want to talk about decentralized AI, but what you just said is really interesting because <laughs> I believe that the time period from for light from Earth to Mars is eight minutes. It might be eight hours. Um, no, wait, isn't that to the sun is eight minutes? I'm gonna look this up right yeah. now while we talk. Yeah. So that there, but there's some time period under which. So uh, and, and so then we'll have a, a time zone for each individual time zone in the in the 
in the earth but then there will also be a time zone based on this lag of whatever between earth and mars um and then whatever other satellites were you able to find information uh i would say to go to mars like 15 minutes uh, I think 15 minutes, 12 minutes, 12 minutes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, but that will basically make it impossible to do, uh, yeah, three minutes, three minutes. Um, and so it'll make it impossible to, well, actually... is that depending on in real life, it says five to 20 minutes and then you have to double that, right? Cause usually information has to go both ways, both ways. to get a response acknowledgement or something, but yeah. Yeah. yeah interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, but that'll destroy um re remote communications which you know hasn't actually been a problem i've uh, with the rise of remote work it's really fun to take the trend all the way back and like think about an emperor in rome who was writing you know who had eight he was dictating to eight different people all the letters that he was writing um so you, you know just imagine like the emperor of rome with eight people and he's just speaking to one being like hey you there tell the guy tell the general wherever to to go you know hunt for this guy or whatever and then sends off the letter mm -hmm. and he's got seven other people uh, and so we've had that problem the whole the whole time. But um, and so we got a couple minutes left. Uh, uh, what's the big takeaway for people listening? Like, how can they prepare for this new rise of AI? I think finding staying up to date on its limits, as in try out GPT for yourself, ask it to do something hard and realize it kind of gets it right and it kind of doesn't. And then ask it to do something else that's even harder. Like if let's say you're like an insurance broker, okay, analyze the insurance market from this perspective, from you know, from this perspective. If, if the number of car accidents increased because of this thing, what would happen? Show your math. Like actually trying to get the AI to do kind of like hard stuff for them shows them the limits of it. And mm -hmm. it takes the fear away. Because if you can like try to use it yourself, like if you ask it to write a song, ooh, it's fun. It it could write a song, you know. Um, ask it to write a song in a different language or something or like ask it to write uh about specific details or like ask it to solve a math problem or ask it to solve analyze the market that you're in or analyze or you could ask it to interview you and you realize that like yeah it comes up with good questions but you have to keep telling it to ask it different types of questions otherwise it'll get stuck in a loop of the same type of question so like by getting hands-on with a lot of these like chat GPT specifically chat GPT four, not 3.5. Don't use the free one. It's just half as good, I think. But by getting familiar with it, like you see its limits, you kind of see where it does a good job and where it really doesn't. And if you're constantly up to date on the limits of these AI, the fear goes away and you can have a clear headed perspective on what's going to happen in the future. That's mm. what I think. That's super interesting. Uh, so go, go check out uh, DT on Twitter, pulling up your, uh, yeah, deeper so thrill is my handle thrill. yeah uh so go follow deeper thrill on twitter thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so much thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed this episode as always you can find me on twitter at Stuart alsop iii also don't forget to subscribe on spotify or itunes for every weekly episode that i publish on monday mornings hope you have a great day